0: This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Well, thank you, Sharon, for a lovely introduction. And it's nice to be back in this space. I find this room uh, inviting in its largeness and openness. And thank all of you for coming. even for a topic that might sound a little bit daunting uh, from the title. But I assure you there's quite a lot to learn here. So this series on strengthening mindfulness is devoted to mindfulness of various things and how we can deepen and strengthen our mindfulness practice, right? And so we have sort of different topics, different days, I think it's important to realize that there's nothing essentially different about the mindfulness that's aware of the body compared to the mindfulness that's aware of anger or thoughts or acts of generosity. But what might be different are the practice techniques and inquiries that are relevant when developing mindfulness of various different realms of experience, if you will. So today we're going to look at mindfulness of pain, illness, and death. And it happens that these are excellent, excellent subjects for developing awareness because they're very compelling to the mind, right? The Buddha was very clear about the importance of looking at these particular experiences. And of course we know from our own life that these are inevitable visitors, to our life, right? Sometimes even frequently. So I would say it's a good thing that they're useful then, (laughs) since we have them anyway. One of the things that I appreciated about this path when I first found it was its willingness to be completely honest in this way, is that um, it didn't tell me to put on a happy face and ignore suffering it actually said, yeah, suffering exists. In fact, that's the very first of the noble truths that the Buddha taught. And so it kind of affirmed my underlying suspicions about life. And I I found it actually quite respectful that this practice and this path encourage us to look directly at some of the most difficult human experiences and not to shy away from those, but instead to use them to develop our practice in one story of the Buddha, actually, his spiritual quest was prompted by seeing uh, an aging person and a sick person and, and a corpse. And he began to understand from seeing these that he too is going to age and grow ill and die. And that that got him going. He set out to discover that which doesn't age and doesn't grow ill and doesn't die Which is Nibbana, the aim of practice. And that same path is open to us, you know, because of his courage in addressing that. So, having a human body means experiencing pain, just in case you weren't clear on that (laughs) yet. Mm -hmm. So, it's for sure true, from the knee pain of sitting for 45 minutes or the back pain um, to the really difficult pain of end-stage cancer for example all of these are part of life potentially part of life i had a period in my own life when i experienced several years of chronic pain in fact that's what brought me to the path so that was a powerful introduction for me and you know i continued to understand the value of that in light of what we're, what we're being taught. So we're not going to avoid or eliminate pain in our life. I'm sorry to say that that is not what meditation practice offers. Uh, In fact, the Buddha himself had back pain near the end of his life. There are suttas where uh, the Buddha arrives somewhere and people are gathered around waiting to hear him teach. And he's a very old man at this point and he says, you know what, my back hurts. I'm gonna go lie down, he says to one of his monks, you go give the talk. <laughs> so it was true even for him, and he had the compassion to you know to take care of himself at that moment. So the Buddha was very clear about what pain and suffering are. He even defined them in a number of suttas. And the classic definition Is to say birth is suffering, aging is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Separation from the loved is suffering. Union with the unloved is suffering. And not getting what we want is suffering. That, in my experience, pretty much covers it. And the task associated with these challenges of human life, all of which we experience some of the time and some of which we experience all of the time, uh, is to understand what that really is, what that really means. And so some people you know, arrive in practice and say, yeah, I get it. Um, I'm here because <laughs> things aren't working. Um, but the task is to really understand that, to actually turn toward what's difficult and what's painful in our life. Not in a sort of a morbid, I'm gonna power my way through this kind of attitude, but turning toward it gently. What is this? What is this very human experience of difficulty or unsatisfactoriness or suffering? Doesn't even have to be as dramatic as something we would call suffering. Could be much lighter, but there's still that feeling of not quite right. Very human. And to, it was, I think it was a real genius of the Buddha to recognize that this is a common thread through our experience, this sense that things aren't quite right and they're going to be better when, when I get my car fixed, when I get that better job, when I can get home where it's air-conditioned, whatever it is that's going through your mind. So I'm going to turn specifically to pain and illness, the first two areas that we're looking at. They're fairly similar uh, in how how we can approach them in practice. But there are two things that really help in engaging with pain um, that I'll just say up front. The first is to be aware that there is a body and there's a mind, and they're not the same thing. And this may sound like, why is she saying that? But they're different. And we have to deal with both regarding pain. You know, say we have a pain in our knee. Um, There is the pain in the knee. That's very real. And then there's everything that we think about that. You know, oh my gosh, I'm sitting here um, and my knee is hurting and there's still 20 minutes left in the meditation and I'm not supposed to move and I've always been a good student. So I want to follow that instruction. But I'm afraid that if I sit like this for much longer, I'm going to need knee surgery. And, and then, and then, and then. And so the mind is thinking about this. This is not the same. This activity of the mind is not the same as the knee pain. It's a different activity going on. So it helps to know that. And you will come to see that the mind is much trickier to deal with <laughs> than the body. Um, and more insidious in many ways. That's just how it is. (laughs) And then the second top-level thing that it's worth realizing is that we are not the pain. So this also sounds a little odd at first. What does that mean? But it's very easy to become what's called identified with our experiences, particularly physical experiences that are unpleasant, and to really believe at that moment that this is the defining factor of my life at this moment. And that's all the mind can go to. And that's, um, that's really who we are. We are a person with knee pain at that moment. And that's it. We're not a mother. We're not a worker. Uh, we're not anything else. We limit ourselves into this one um, way of being. And it's possible... Um, not to be limited in that way. Even when there's an experience that's difficult of pain or of illness, maybe we've been fortunate enough to be with someone who was uh, very ill or even dying, and somehow, that wasn't the focus of where their mind was. You know, maybe it was some of the time, but you caught them on a good day and they were in some kind of an expansive mind state and they were talking about just how grateful they were for their life and all kinds of other things. At that moment, they were just as ill as they were at the time when they were grumbling and complaining and saying, oh my gosh, this is so awful. But they weren't defining themselves by it. Maybe you've experienced this. And so then maybe there's a sense that we can do that for ourselves also. So we are not the pain. The part that can observe the pain or the illness and sort of be with it and say, wow, this is what this feels like at this moment that part is not in pain. Have you noticed that? So there's a part of our mind that's not in pain even when we are, if we're mindful, if we have that awareness. And that's really good to know. It means that we don't have to be defined by that experience. This is actually essential to being able to understand it completely, is to be able to stand apart from it in some way. So with these two things in mind, I want to talk about a few techniques and understandings that you may find helpful for pain and and for illness. The first is that the word pain is very abstract. It's abstract. It's a concept. I mean, what is pain exactly, except a word? So in Buddhist practice, we're encouraged to look at the more elemental, more basic sensations that are going on. Some possibilities include burning, pulling, tearing, stabbing, electric shock, stinging. Do these sound more descriptive somehow, more realistic as to the different kinds and elements and nuances that there are in pain? So I think it's important not to approach pain as a concept or as mere words and just say, my knee hurts like, a, like it's a big wall. But let's you know put those put those more accurate differentiators on it without getting caught up in thinking, is this stabbing or just prickling? You know, it's okay. (laughs) Whatever word comes to mind is probably good enough. So on the practical level, it's helpful to breathe through pain. And so if there's a feeling of pain somewhere in the body, the breath is something that moves. We've maybe noticed that during the meditation. Um, it's possible to imagine the breath flowing through the pain. Now, this is a visualization. It's kind of an imaginary thing that we're doing. But it's a technique that can help us to find that place where we're separate from the pain that's happening. And so uh, I recommend it as kind of a first technique to, in order to break that sense of solidity of the pain. And then, if you're able to be mindful of what's going on and not to be completely dominated by whatever pain you're feeling, it's helpful to actually look at what that experience of pain is. Like, forget, you know, all the ideas. Oh my gosh, my knee hurts. What is it really? Approach it freshly like you've never felt this particular pain before, which you haven't. (laughs) So, approach it with that attitude and see what it looks like. And often, I have found that it feels like the pain is occurring when I really look at where it is, it's a cubic millimeter, you know, somewhere in my shoulder or something. Maybe it's bigger, but often it's very tiny and it's often not continuous. It's little flashes of sensation that turn on and off. We're mindful, we'll see that it's you know, can be very quick, but it's not quite solid and When we see that, that's actually the beginning of the end of our suffering around that pain. may, you know, it's not going to instantly go away. The pain doesn't go away either. Remember that. It may, but it may not. But as soon as the mind sees that something is not solid, that it's actually changing, it undermines the belief that that is an, an unbreakable wall that we just have to suffer with. It's, it's interesting. And you don't need to think about that consciously. It actually just happens automatically. When the mind sees that there are breaks between things, it can't quite believe in the solidity anymore. Your heart is smart. It's going to get it. So have the courage to turn and really feel that pain and the changing nature of it. It will help a lot. It will help a lot. So actually, if you find that when you encounter pain, you notice that it's changing or you can see that nature of it, you can celebrate that. That's actually, you've done something really important if you've been able to see that. Not project it or imagine it, but actually experience it directly because that is the first step in letting go. Let me say again that letting go doesn't mean that the pain goes away but it means that we're not drawn into it or controlled by the beliefs around it. So we can be mindful of that pain. And with this approach, you know, of really being willing to just be with the changing nature of it and to trust that the mind can stay with it without falling in, we can be mindful even of the pain that comes with death. You know, that, that becomes possible. so illness i didn't I was framing this mostly around pain. Illness is very similar you know when we 're feeling ill or sick or under the weather um, you know something is wrong with the body in some way or maybe it 's not really wrong. <laughs> something is different about the body at that moment. There are uncomfortable body sensations, and we have the same issue that we have uncomfortable feelings uh, and the mind reacting to those. And there's a difference between them. You know, there's the whatever it is that we've got going on, um, the fever, the weakness, uh, the difficulties with our nervous system, whatever kind of illness we have. And then there's the mind making up stories about that and saying, oh my gosh, this means this, this means that. Um, I'm anxious about where this is going to go. It can get quite serious. And it's true that, you know, we don't know where and illness is going to go and so this is you know maybe quite a test of our practice at times but essentially the same techniques apply can we remember that we're not that illness and can we separate the body and the mind and make sure that we're treating them in the appropriate ways i have a quote to read from upasika key who was a a thai laywoman practitioner Rumored to be fully enlightened by the end of her life, and also a very tough teacher <laughs> and this is a um, this is from a talk she gave called or a yeah called a good Dose of Dhamma for meditators when they are ill. <laughs> so I think she actually spoke this in a hospital and it was recorded. So normally, Illness is something we all have, but the type of illness where you can still do your work isn't recognized as illness. It's called the normal human condition all over the world. Yet really, when the body is in its normal state, it's still ill. But people generally are unaware of this illness. The way people get carried away with their thoughts and preoccupations while they're still strong enough to work, that's real complacency. They're no match for people lying in bed ill. People lying in bed ill are lucky because they have the opportunity to do nothing but contemplate stress and pain. Their minds don't take up anything else, don't go anywhere else. They can contemplate pain at all times and let go of pain at all times too. To contemplate inconstancy, stress and not selfness as it appears right inside you while you're lying right here is very beneficial for you. Just don't think that you're what's hurting. Simply see the natural phenomena of physical and mental events as they arise and pass away, arise and pass away. They're not you. They're not really yours. You don't have any real control over them. Keep on looking in. Keep on looking in so that things are really clear and that's enough. You don't have to find out anything anywhere else. There's a lot in there. We won't go over it in too much detail, but it's a powerful approach, you know, to really take that illness, and she's talking about people in the hospital um, who are incapacitated with their illnesses, to really take that as just, this is reality right now, and this is my opportunity to see and let go of pain at every moment. And she brings in the fact that it's not you, that there's no control. And then I like especially the end, where she says, that's enough. That's enough. It's enough to see that clearly. You don't have to find out anything anywhere else. So this points toward what the Buddha repeatedly said, is that our own experience is the teacher. This is it. What we're experiencing right now is um, is adequate for us to develop wisdom and compassion and eventually let go and find liberation. I find this very encouraging, is that... Um, that it's not anywhere else that my own life can be that source often people realize through illness or anything where their mundane normal normalcy of their life is disrupted they realize what they really value and so these are opportunities also for development of compassion or spiritual urgency or a change in behavior about um, what we do with our life. So I offer that as a possibility also. So let's move on to the realm of death. And this um, this is, this gets a little more interesting, right? Let's crank up the stakes a little bit here. A teacher of mine once said about death, it's a common experience. And I think this has two meanings. First, it is a very common experience. Like 100% of people will experience this. And it's common, it happens frequently, every day, all the time, this is happening. And it's also an experience that is common to all people. Yeah? So it unites us in a way. What if we viewed, you know, death and also pain and illness as things that? unify humans. I think already that brings it into a very different light than if we see it as this awful thing that's going to happen or this terrible thing that has befallen me and my friends aren't ill. It's it's a common experience. It's something that uh, unites us with all the other ill people at that moment or all the other people who are dying at that moment. The Buddha said, Mindfulness of death, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit, culminating in the deathless, having the deathless as its consummation. And the deathless is there, is another word for freedom, for liberation. So the range of Buddhist practices around death is called um, Maranasati. That's the name for it in an ancient Indian language, Pali. And Mara is uh, the force that's um, often often personified, as basically unwholesomeness or temptation or even literal death. So Mara is uh, the tempter if you will, the one that distracts you during meditation. <laughs> and then Sati means mindfulness. You know, So this is mindfulness of death or mindfulness yeah mindfulness of death. And it shows that death is just another subject for meditation. It's another thing to be mindful of like the body, like feelings, like other things held in calm awareness and available for investigation. Could we see our death that way? So mindfulness of death, talking about it in this way, makes explicit an underlying truth that we all know about, which is that we are going to die. The elephant in the room, if you will. But we're born with a strong survival instinct, just like animals are, for example. But as humans, we're in the uncomfortable position of knowing that eventually we will fail at our desire to survive. It's, it's, we're going to survive everything except one thing. <laughs> we don't know what. <laughs> we're going to do. So it's pretty good track record. But there's going to be that one. So how do we? I mean, how do we live with that? How do we live with this knowledge? And there are many, many avoidance strategies and they tend to look like all the problems of the world. Denial, aggression, covetousness, (laughs) hyper-busyness. You know, what can we do to not think about that? So interestingly though, just facing this fact, this reality, and even in a very gentle way, already helps. You know, it already starts to erode the fear, the pain, here you are in a room with people where it's okay to say that word and we're going to talk about it a little bit and it's okay. It's okay. But please do use your mindfulness you know, as we go into this topic a little more and make sure that you're connecting with these teachings to a degree that feels helpful to you tonight. You know, I don't know where all of you are at on this topic. So please be aware for yourself and take care of yourself. So the key to success, if you will, in any type of death awareness practice, any type of maranasati practice, could be summarized um, as, well, it's correct contemplation, so looking at it in the right way. And this could be summarized as, me too. (laughs) So my body too is going to be like that. I am not exempt from that fate. Yeah. So um, just like the Buddha realized when he saw a corpse, his thought was, I'm going to be like that too and what can I do about that to understand that so actually the reason I have to say this is that few people emphasize this Uh, when they, I mean death happens all the time, people see it every day but not a lot of wisdom comes from that necessarily if we're not looking at it in the right way, so often people use um, an aesthetic approach um, or you know, something kind of artistic or a scientific or analytical, you know, a way of separating from what they're seeing. Um, And wisdom doesn't really develop under those circumstances. Think of how many deaths people have seen in movies by the time they get to be our age. Was any wisdom developed from that? Probably not. If it wasn't seen in this light of that applies to me too. How can I bring this into my life? How can I understand it? So that investigation is really important. Interestingly, what's called this, you know, this Me Too investigation or awareness leads us to understand that death is natural and normal and is going to be part of our own experience. So it actually helps to overcome fear in certain ways when done in a supportive way. So I want to talk about a number of ways to bring awareness of death into our own lives. And one is fairly simple. It's to note which things in your life um, have come to you from people who are now dead, right? So maybe you have an Afghan from your grandmother or there's a picture on your mantle where some of the people in it aren't alive anymore, um, or anything else. Just consider your own possessions and how they are going to go to other people when you pass on. You don't take them with you. So, you know, these things will someday belong to someone else. Uh, someone will have to deal with them after I after I die. So simple things like that. This helps sort of loosen the idea that collecting things during our life uh is going to save us in some way. Also it's interesting to notice um, endings, you know, the kind of conceptual death of experience that happens every day. You know, your breakfast ended this morning. It's not happening anymore. Did you notice the end of it? Or was the end of breakfast pushed aside because it was the beginning of getting things together to go out the door? Something like that. So it's interesting to just take a moment to watch the ending of things instead of rushing on to the next thing that's beginning, which is what we kind of like to do. It's the fresh new thing that's arising. So just be aware. You don't have to do this obsessively, but just notice endings, um, including the ending of this sentence. Okay, here's one. Um, When you encounter roadkill or the cat drags something in, you can think my body would look like that too (laughs) under (laughs) similar circumstances. And, you know, often what we see is not in very good shape when it's coming in in that state. And... That's a powerful one sometimes. But I remember, you know, my body is just as vulnerable as that. And I won't necessarily look like a nice corpse laid out in the coffin. If something like that were to happen, my body's a mechanical thing. It would fail in exactly the same way. On the cushion, a practice that can be done is to breathe in and out as if it is your last breath and actually notice the end of the breath and allow that out breath to fade away. You don't have to sort of make it artificial and you know really push it out and fall into that ending. Just make it natural you know and just watch that breath ending. Your breath has ended how many hundreds of thousands of times already? So you can watch this one very carefully. It's okay. And then you'll notice that the breath naturally re-arises. Probably unless that really is your last breath. Unlikely. Um, and just see, what does that trigger? Does it trigger any feelings? Can you watch all the way through? What you might notice is that the mind watches for a while, and then it's like, whoosh, <laughs> you know, it's like, didn't want to see the end of that one. Um, just see see what it's like to do that. It might be an interesting experience. Another interesting way to bring awareness of death into life is to notice the places where we the interface where we have death in our uh, culture, so cemeteries and mortuaries, for example, right? So when you drive by such places, um, do you see them? Some people have reported that they drive by the cemetery every day on the way to work. It just happens to be there, and they've never seen it. (laughs) You know, it's been... Six years and they suddenly you know, they, they get interested in practice and somebody tells them it's interesting to look at cemeteries and they say, oh my gosh, I had no idea that was so large. It goes way back from the road and they've never seen it. Six years driving by. Why not? The mind doesn't want to see that. Kind of humbling. Kind of humbling that that can happen. Uh, it's kind of fun also to uh, walk in the cemetery and I've, I had a period where I liked doing this I, in my practice. I got interested in it. And I would walk and I would read the gravestones and I would notice that um, some of the people had died at ages younger than I was. So I was like, oh, right. And, so, uh, and also, you know, some were quite young. You know, there were gravestones for children and babies even. It's interesting to contemplate death can come at any time you know people die at all ages and here I am having gotten this far I wonder how far how far it could go and how would I live knowing that it could be any time if you're feeling um, empowered by having done all of that There's also plenty of images available on the web of skeletons, for example. You could start with that. Most of us have seen skeletons. We make light of them at Halloween. But have you really looked at a real skeleton? You know, look at an archaeological dig or something. Or you can even find pictures of dead bodies online. Um, Do this in a way that's gentle and mindful. I recommend sitting down and actually reflecting on what you're going to do before you do your little search Um, and then uh, really being aware. Often when we look at a screen, the tendency is to just fall into it. Uh, It's hard to be mindful while looking at a screen, so this is also practice for that. But it's interesting. you know. I recommend uh, checking out these images and seeing what they bring up in you. And if it's too much, you can always turn it off. And by the way, please close the browser and don't leave that sitting on the screen for the next person in your household to find. It's probably good. I'll share one experience that um, Shyla has talked about is that she, um, she likes skeletons also. <laughs> and she was, you know, she's been, she'd been looking at them for a while and thought, oh, you know, I'm really used to this. I don't, it doesn't gross me out to see this. And I can think, oh, yes, I have a skeleton too. And then one day she looked at a picture where the skeleton wasn't in the right shape. Like the bones were Separated. and and scattered, and so it didn't look like a human form. And she had a strong reaction to that. She didn't realize that she was attached to the shape of the body and seeing the head and then the arms and the ribs and the legs. And then when she saw it not in the right structure, she felt um, aversion and maybe some fear. She didn't say exactly what she felt, but that there was a reaction to that kind of like the first reaction people might have when they see a dead body for the first time. It's like, oh. So that's interesting, right? She didn't know she had that subtle attachment, so that prompted me to go try that also. So it's interesting. If you're looking for very experiential awareness, it's possible to volunteer in a hospice, for example, or a hospital, and, um, you know, and see people that are in... States that are close to death, or or in the process of dying, and that can also be powerful if we remember that someday that may be us too. Or and again, this is always done according to your interest, according to your you know your level of of wanting to practice with this. Here's another approach. That I find interesting. Um, there's a there was a hospice nurse, I believe she was, who wrote a book um, called "The Top Five Regrets of the Dying," that she compiled from years of experience of attending to people at the bedside and learning, you know, what or maybe she was a chaplain. I'm not sure but learning what it is that people expressed as their regrets as they were nearing the end of life. And I've taken these as serious practices in order to not have these regrets. So um, here are the five. Uh, Number one, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Yeah? This is what people think about on on their deathbed Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. So Jack Cornfield says, nobody lies on their deathbed saying, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. So, <laughs> number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. I thought that one was interesting. Um, two of these, number one and number three, say I wish I'd had the courage as the first thing. So I've I've thought about that for myself, you know, what is it that I'm afraid to do? And what is it that I think is, you know, fear should trump, given that I'm gonna die someday? What is it that I don't want to be sorry I was afraid to do? Number four, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. So when we're in the process of dying, we don't think so much about our work, we think about our relationships and how well we've tended those over time. And then number five, which I think maybe captures all of them, I wish I had let myself be happier. Yeah? It's interesting. I mean, it's so easy to think about the ways in which we're unhappy right now. The problems that we have, and if this weren't like this, and if that weren't like that, and if I could solve this and fix that, and if only, and so forth. And then you get to the end and you wish that you'd let yourself be happier. (laughs) So I think about that one too, is how happy can I be at this moment? Not that it's all about just forgetting everything and being happy. Um, You know, I hope I've made it clear that looking at pain and illness is a very important part of practice. But is that compatible also with feeling some kind of happiness or joy at this life and at the opportunity that we have here? So that brings us maybe to the fruit of having the courage to have awareness of pain, illness, and death in our life. One of them, I'll just list a few. I'm sure there's more. These are just ones that came to mind. They're not an official list anywhere. Aliveness and appreciation of our life. I often find that thinking about the fact that death will come, that I won't be able to sit like this forever, be a, move around, etc. brings to me a a certain um, joy in the in the ability to do that, and in the aliveness of my life right now, no matter what's happening. So yeah, actually, joy, even at you know being aware of the difficulties. In terms of a practice sense, uh, these awarenesses can be a concentration practice. People report getting amazingly concentrated on the sensations of pain and yes they're unpleasant but actually when you get really concentrated on those dancing sensations in the knee, they're not that unpleasant actually. They can become more neutral in character sometimes. And that there can actually, they can actually be a concentration object. And the Buddha recognized this, that it's possible for the mind to sort of gather around that experience. And interestingly, the experience of a gathered mind is very pleasant. <laughs> and so there's this contrast of, I'm feeling something that's not that comfortable, but I'm really aware of it in a very mindful and equanimous way, and that actually feels pleasant. <laughs> wow, mm-hmm. very interesting stability and unification of the mind. And then there's um, the possibility of what's called samvega, Vega, which is urgency for spiritual practice. So the sense of, wow, this is the real deal right now, and uh, this is the time to find liberation. You know, this is I'm motivated. I see that, um, you know, my the the concerns that I had about, you know, what my daughter wears to the prom tomorrow are not important <laughs> compared to the possibility offered you know, of finding something really meaningful in my life. And then, of course, compassion. You know, pain is something that unites all of us. Um, we felt it ourselves. We can be aware that other people feel that and have the sense of knowing what that's like for them and that this is a difficult time for them or for us. And just having that care for ourselves to uh, to hold ourselves kindly, with awareness, with the understanding that this is part of being human. You know, this is it. (laughs) This is what's happening. And that opening of the heart that can come from uh, not blocking out the, the suffering and the pain of life. So we'll end with a poem from Mary Oliver that many of you may have heard and which is always worth hearing again. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down into the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Right. Well, may we all use the opportunity of pain, illness and death to further our spiritual practice. Thank you everyone. Have a good evening.